I want to start chapter 2 at the very end of it, because uh, there's really a, a statement that Paul makes here that kind of grounds everything that, that we're going to talk about today. And so let's go to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 14 says this, and he's speaking about Jesus Christ from the previous verse, so I'll add that to the text. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What I really want you to see in that text are the words, a people that are his very own. That's what God is about today. God is forming a people that are his very own. That's what this book is all about. We said in week one of this series that the church matters and you matter today. Not just, you know, you have a purpose in the plan of your family life or your children or your grandchildren or your workplace. No, you matter in the plan of God. The church matters. And if you say, well, what is God up to? What is God doing in the world? Your answer is right here in this verse. God is redeeming people and he's purifying them for himself, a people that are his very own, a people that are his very own. I just want to make sure we're on the same page before we start at verse one. Could we all say that together? A people who are his very own. That's what God is doing. And we're going to see why Paul is writing These instructions to Titus, that's where we're going today. The question that Titus had to answer about the church in Crete, where he was pastoring, and the question that we need to answer today in our own life is, does our community recognize us as a people who are his very own? You could take that a little farther and personalize it. Does your community, your sphere of influence, the people that know you, the people that work with you, walk with you follow you on social media? Do the people that know you recognize you as God's very own? And that is the situation that Paul is speaking to. The problem that he was facing is the fact that in the church at Crete, where he left Titus to pastor, they lacked leadership. They didn't have good godly leaders who would hold on to the teaching of the word of God. And and to Make the problem even worse, there were false teachers that had come in, and they had filled in that leadership vacuum, and they had begun teaching false doctrine, and they were profiting off of their false teaching. And so that's the the situation in the church on the island of Crete. And so here's Paul's solution, and this is where we've gotten so far. Paul, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. He says, I left you there, Titus, so that you could raise up leaders, so that you could appoint leaders who would teach sound doctrine and who would silence those who oppose it. He was saying, I need leadership in the church to bring order, to bring instruction. And then Paul does something. He doubles down on the power of the gospel. He puts all his chips in the middle of the table on the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is fully convinced as he moves into chapter two that the gospel is enough to transform and change people's lives. And if we'll teach people the gospel, if we'll disciple them according to the word of God, then they can stand out from the culture, stand apart from society as God's very own special people. That's what we're going to see. Paul is fully committed. He said, if this doesn't work, there is no plan B. 
And I would say amen to that today. How about you? So he says, it's about the gospel. We need leaders that will be committed to teach the gospel. You need to disciple people according to what you've been taught. Don't let the message change, even though the world is changing. And if we'll do that, we'll see God rescuing, redeeming, and purifying a people who are his very own. Look with me at verse 1, Titus chapter 2. And just before we read it, let's just, let's just pray one more time that God would just breathe into this moment his very presence. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God that we have in our laps. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, it's powerful, it's active. Your word says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that the word of God has the ability to go much deeper than a surgeon's scalpel, beyond, uh, beyond joint and marrow and bone. Lord, it goes to the very soul and spirit. It judges our hearts. And Lord, we gladly put our hearts in the operating room of your presence, God, and of your word. Lord, we invite you to speak to us, instruct us, and lead us, and guide us by it. Because Lord, we believe we are your very own people. And Lord, for those of us that have already come to faith, Lord, we thank you that you redeemed us. But Lord, we know that your work is not finished in us. Lord, you want to purify us today. So God, we ask you to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 2, here's what it says. You, however, and you is Titus, obviously. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, can I just say that the however there is a really big however. That however is a contrast to everything that we talked about last week. He talked about the false teachers and how they were trying to put standards on people for salvation that Jesus didn't put on them. They were trying to put a yoke of legalism on people. Those false teachers were called the circumcision group. They were trying to take all of these Gentile believers, like most of us, by the way, people who were not born a part of the Jewish descent, but they were trying to take them and bring them back under the law of the old covenant. And so you have to go through all these rites of passage, and you have to do all these things and abstain from all these things. And, and so Paul says, in, in light of all that, you, however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Paul, again, this is the gospel he's so committed to, that the gospel is enough to make us good. You don't have to be good to come to the gospel. The gospel is enough. If you'll come to Christ, he can transform your life from the inside out. He can do that. We have confidence that he can do that. We don't have to put a yoke of legalism on you before you come to Jesus. You can just come to Jesus. And here's the problem if you don't believe that, in case you're not trekking with me here, in case you're you know, kind of arguing with me in your mind. The problem with saying, no, you do have to be good enough, is it begs the question, then how good do you have to be? You know what the answer to the question, how good is good enough, is? A little more. Give it your best. Now a little more is required. Go all in. Try, try, and try again. But listen to me today, church. Good enough will never be good enough. Your good enough will never be good enough. My good enough, it'll never be good enough. Why? Because the standard is God himself. It's his presence that we're going to be standing in one day. And his standard is perfection. And so none of us measure up. And Paul knew that. And he said, make sure that in light of what they're saying, that you preach sound doctrine. 
And this is Paul's major emphasis. It's actually the third time that we've already seen this phrase, sound. Speaking of doctrine, he said it in chapter 1, verse 9. He said it in chapter 1, verse 13. And now he's saying it again in chapter 2. And he's going to say it again before we're finished with this chapter. That word sound in the Greek is the word that we get our English word, hygiene. Probably didn't expect that. Hygiene, sound doctrine. And the word, it meant health. It meant wellness. And so even in this Middle Eastern culture in that day, sometimes people would, they would use that word soundness to greet one another. They would greet someone by, by wishing them soundness, to wish them well, to wish them good health. And so Paul is saying, our gospel needs to be healthy. How about we be committed to be a church of healthy doctrine? Amen? Not, not just cupcake doctrine that makes your faith spike for about 30 minutes, and then you drop and you tank before Monday comes. No, I'm talking like high protein, low fat, non-GMO, you know, healthy, organic, all, all the labels you want to put in, come on, healthy doctrine. That's what Paul's talking about we need in the church, a healthy soundness. You know, it's often been said that, we've said this often, that the church should be a microcosm of heaven. And what we mean when we say that is it ought to be multi-generational, and it, it ought to be multi-ethnic. That the church is made up of a lot of different people, a diversity of people, and and that's how it should be. And if the church is going to be diverse and it's going to have a lot of different people at different places and stages of life, then it makes sense that we would have ministries that are uniquely catered towards those different groups. And that's what we're going to lead into here. Paul understood that. And so Paul's going to give instructions to Titus about specific groups in the church. It's why we have a men's ministry and a women's ministry. And we have our senior connection. We have our kids' ministry and our youth ministry. And because we understand that, that the gospel is applicable at every age and every stage of life. And so all of us, though the gospel is applicable at every stage, different parts of it apply to us in different seasons. You understand, right? There's, there's some stories in the Old Testament we probably shouldn't teach in kids' church, right? <laughs> right, Steph? Like you just go, oh, let's not go to that one. That's PG-13. But the gospel is, is applicable to every stage of life. That's why our life groups are not set up geographically. We don't say just because you live near that person, you guys should get together. Because we understand that you're going to drive three times farther to be with people that you can connect with than you will with somebody that you're just geographically located near. Because we're in different stages of our lives. And so, so Paul gives Titus some instruction about teaching. And the first group that he mentions is the older men. He says this in Titus 2 verse 2. He says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, and self-controlled. You know, as I read that, we'll just stop there. I, I couldn't help but think, you know, there was a time in our culture where everybody was taught to just respect their elders, right? I'm not going to try to get on a soapbox here, but I see a lot of heads nodding. Like, you remember, that was just like the culture. That was normal. And that should not surprise us, knowing our own history. That was a biblical idea. That was a biblical concept, to respect your elders. You just, you show respect. So it's no surprise to us that as our society gets farther and farther away from biblical moorings, that we're losing respect more and more. That's just not inherent in our culture. It was inherent in Paul's culture. 
that you respect your elders. But, but Paul says something that is even more applicable to us in this day, I think. And that is that you that are older, you should, you should live your lives worthy of respect. In other words, don't just assume it's going to be given to you. Don't just demand it because you've been around longer. Live your life in a way that is worthy of respect. Be respectable. And then look at further. He says, and, verse 2 still, and sound, there's that word again, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. He wants you to be healthy men in your faith, in your love, and in your endurance. You know, the reality is it's easy for our faith to become weak and our love to grow cold when we lose our youthful energy. Those three things of love and faith and endurance, they go together, don't they? I mean, it's true. Tired eyes can't see the future. And so when our energy wanes away, our love can grow cold. Our faith can grow cold. And if we aren't careful, what can happen is cynicism can start to creep in. You know cynicism starting to creep in when you stop preparing for the best are planning for the best, rather, and you just start preparing for the worst. You just start to, to see things through cynical eyes. I, I love this statement I read from John Benton. He writes, there is a solidity and a commitment to what is right, which inspires younger men to secretly say to themselves, I want to be like him. Can I just say to the older men, that's your challenge today. Notice I said your and not our. I'm still trying. I'm still trying. To some of you, I am in the older man category, but to the older men, here's the challenge, that you live your life in such a way that people would look at your commitment, that younger men would look at your commitment and say, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. His faith, after all these years, his faith is still strong. After all he's been through, his love is still strong. His endurance is still there. He doesn't move as fast as he used to, but man, he still gets there. I mean, come on, even the turtle got on the ark, right? There's some endurance. There's some endurance that just says, I'm just going to keep on keeping on. I heard Joyce Meyer say one time, endurance is just outlasting the devil. I love that definition. Just sticking with it one more day. And that's our challenge, that we would be committed. And then he speaks to older women and to younger women in verse 3 and 5. And wisely, Paul does not clarify who the older women and who the younger women are. And so I'm not going to either. In fact, some theologians believe that he might not have even been speaking necessarily about an age uh, numerically. He might have been speaking about those who are more experienced in, uh, in being a wife, being a mother, those who are more mature versus those who are inexperienced, and at whatever rate, the instruction that he gives in verse 3 is this. He says, likewise, Timothy or Titus, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So here's what's happening. Apparently, in the Cretan community, a lot of the older women are just sipping on wine and gossiping. You know, they didn't have daytime soap operas, so they were just sipping on wine and gossiping. And Paul says, you should rather be focused, instead of just sitting around and talking about what is bad, you ought to be focused on teaching what is good. And so he gives that emphasis, and then it says in the next verse, verse 4, 
then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and their children. So I want you to notice something. When he's talking to the older women and when he's talking to the older men, the emphasis that that Paul has is that you teach the next generation. I mean, listen, there, there may be a day and a time in your life where you retire from your career, but how many of you understand the Bible doesn't speak of retirement? There's no time that we retire from our purpose. I mean, you may finish that job, and you may be in a different season of your life, but you don't retire from purpose. And Paul is saying, look, primarily, you need to be healthy in your faith, in your doctrine. You need to be healthy in your love and in your endurance, and you need to be focused on what is right and not what is wrong with the world because there's another generation that's coming behind you. And if the church is going to be God's very own people tomorrow, then we've got to live in front of the next generation like God's very own people today. And that's the mandate that he speaks to them. Now, then he starts to talk about the younger woman in verse 4 and 5. He says, then, again, the older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, now you got to understand something about context here. Paul is writing to people in a culture and in a day and age where women were treated like property. They really were. They were treated like property. They were controlled by their husbands completely. They, they didn't even, you don't go to the house unless he says, go out of the house. And so Paul's writing to now people from that culture that have come to Christ people from that culture that have found new life and freedom in Jesus. And so he says, love your husbands and love your kids and be self-controlled. In other words, don't do it because you are controlled. Don't do it out of necessity. Do it out of love. Love your husbands. Love your family. And then he says to them, be busy at home. Now, again, this is not male chauvinism saying, you know, a woman's place is in the kitchen. And I say that kind of funny, but these scriptures and others like it, have been so abused in the church. They've been so twisted out of, out of sorts. And, and I can promise you, Paul is not saying a woman's place is in the kitchen. See, Paul said, women, stay at home. There it is. Be busy at home. That is not what he's saying. He's writing to people who are living in a specific time, and, and the reality is women stayed at home. That wasn't even the question. He's emphasizing their work ethic. He's not talking about staying home. What he's driving home is is this, and this is the the whole theme for all of this instruction. Paul is trying to communicate the impact that the gospel has on people living in whatever culture or whatever condition you're living in, the impact that the gospel has on people that are living in that society that causes them to look and live different from the world. So Paul writes and he says, teach the younger women to, to be busy at home. Now, Telling most young ladies to be busy at home is like telling you the sky's blue. I mean, I, most young moms that I know are busy. I mean, you're just, you're busy all the time. You're busy at home. But there are some who neglect their responsibilities to their family. There are some who, uh, who don't take on that role that models the character of God, the nature of God. A nurture, the Bible says, like a mother hen, God hides us under his wing. There's, there's attributes of the nature and the character of God that are, that are just put into the DNA of mothers. And there are some that, that neglect 
those responsibilities. And he's saying, you need to be busy. And what he's saying is, don't be lazy. That's pretty much what he's saying. Don't be lazy. And then the very next verse, in verse 5, he says, be kind. And that's so important. I don't know about you, but I know some moms that can be busy as a bee and mean as a hornet. And Paul is saying, yes, be busy in your home, but be kind. Isn't that what happened to Martha? You remember the story of Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, and all of a sudden, Jesus and all of his friends come over, and Martha is, she's just running around the house like crazy, trying to get everything done. She's trying, you know, just get up, get out of the way. I'm trying to sweep the floor. Get out of my kitchen. I'm trying to cook the food. And Jesus is there and he's sharing. And her sister Mary's just sitting there listening to him. And Martha gets so frustrated. She's busy, all right. She gets mad. And she actually accuses Jesus. She says, don't you care? You should tell my sister to come and help me. That's what, he, that's what she says to her Lord. You know, something's wrong with the story when you're talking to your Lord and you're bossing him around. But she is beside herself because she's so busy. And, and Jesus responds to her and basically says to her in Luke 10, he says, Martha, you're worried about many things. And he doesn't say those things don't matter. He doesn't say those things aren't important. But what he does say is one thing is needed. Indeed, only one. And Mary has chosen what is better. And it's not going to be taken from her. I, I, just a, a word of encouragement to you. If you're, if you're busy in the home and you're trying so hard and you're doing it, but you're losing your joy and, and you're not kind anymore to your family, you find yourself being short with your family, it, it's a good indicator that, that you need to just reprioritize your life. Because yes, those things matter. And yes, they're important, but they're not needed. You might think they're needed, but you know, if, if, if God were to pick you up and move you to a, a mud floor hut out in Africa somewhere, you'd find that the priority list you had in middle America doesn't line up with the dust collecting on your shelves in Africa. And, and so when we look at the heart of the issue, Paul is just saying, you know what? The heart and the character of how you do what you do is so important. It's so important. Then he says in verse 5, and if you struggled with that one, you're going to love me for this one, and be subject to your husbands. Now, the word subject means submitted. Now, we're jumping down into some theology now. I told you to put your thinking cap on today. It means be submitted. Now, you need to understand this because, again, people, you know, people have a bread box scripture mentality and it does damage to the church. The bread box mentality is when you just go into the bread box and you got a little scripture for the day and you pull it out and you read it and you go, that's my verse for the day. And that's great if you do that. But you know, my pastor said years ago, you know what you ought to do with that bread box scripture? You ought to tape it back in your Bible where it goes and keep it in context. <laughs> because sometimes we take one verse and we try to use it and, and we don't understand the context of why it was written and we do damage to the word of God. The gospel that Paul proclaimed, the one that he's defending in chapter 1 and he's standing for in chapter 2, is a gospel that says to us adamantly that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel does. The gospel elevates all of us. There's not a hierarchy of who's important and who's not the gospel elevates us. That's what Paul was so frustrated about with the Judaizers. 
trying to tell people that you don't measure up, and if you're going to measure up, you've got to do these things. No, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Amen? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the Bible does present an ordered equality. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Not not a superiority or an inferiority, but different roles. An ordered equality. John Howard Yoder said it like this. He said, equality of worth is not equality of role. Think about that for a minute. Equality of worth is not equality of role. And we have a perfect example of what this looks like when we look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully equal, and yet it's an ordered equality. Jesus is fully God. He's as much God as the Father, as the Holy Spirit, and yet Jesus is submitted to the Father. He said, I only do the things that the Father desires me to do. Why? They're fully equal, but it's an ordered equality. And so what we need to understand, contrary to what our culture would try to communicate to us, is that equality and submissiveness can coexist in human relationships just like they can in the Heavenly Father's relationship. And in other places, Paul writes extensively in Colossians, and I did a wedding last night and shared Paul's words out of Ephesians. And in both of those letters, he talks about the role of husbands as the the head in the family, as Christ is the head of the church. And he emphasizes that the husband's role is to be the leader in the home. But it's a leadership role that is characterized by what Jesus modeled. What did Jesus model? Self-sacrificing servant. Jesus laid down his life for the church. So that's the high standard that the word of God says, yes, men, you're to be the leader in your home. And, And ladies, now listen, he's not speaking about in the workplace. He's not speaking about a woman's role in politics. He's not speaking about a, a woman's role uh, in, in any, he's talking about the home. And he said, in the home, there's an ordered equality, and God has called the husband to be the spiritual leader in the home. And he says, the way that you do that is the way that Jesus loved the church and laid down his life for the church. And what woman wouldn't want to be submitted to that kind of leadership in their home? Because, you know, it's like with us, we're submitted to Christ, but you know, our submission to Christ does not, does not put a damper on our giftings. It doesn't put a damper on our ability to exercise the gifts of the Spirit or to reach our fulfillment or potential in Christ. We understand in our relationship with God, it's the very opposite. Because I'm submitted to Christ, all of the avenues uh, are open to me. I can be everything that God wants me to be in that posture. And and so God says the same thing in a perfect marriage. A, a, A woman of God can be everything that God has called her to be when she is submitted to a man who understands his role as the spiritual leader in his home. That's discipleship that Paul is bringing to Titus and to the church. And he says, this is what it's supposed to look like. See, the reality is a lot of these women in the Cretan culture had received the gospel that says there's male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. And all of a sudden, they had this freedom, and they were no longer walking in in a submitted posture in their marriage, and it was causing conflict, conflict and division. Paul was saying, wait a minute. Yes, we're all one in Christ. Yes, we're all equal. But there's still order that God instituted in the home. It never changed from God's plan in Genesis. There was order before there was sin. Go back and read Genesis again. 
And so he's speaking to bring order in the church. And, and there's a reason why, and it's very important. Look at verse 5. He says, so that, I said last week, every time you see so that, that means a purpose statement's coming. So pay attention. He said, this is why all that matters. For the old men, for the older women, for the, for the younger women, it matters. So that no one will malign the word of God. Again, what, what he's saying is don't let your, your actions, your behavior, discredit the message that you preach. And then he goes to the young men, verse 6. And he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now, compared to all the stuff he said about the women, that doesn't seem fair, does it? That's a pretty short list. But again, the, the reality is, young men already had every advantage in that culture, outwardly. The real question is, and the real question has always been, do you have self-control? You know, as we look out across the history of our world, many wars have been fought by men seeking to control one another. But the bigger question has always, always been, can you win the war inside? Can you control your own heart, your own life? I love this verse out of Proverbs chapter 16. Every man ought to highlight this one in their Bible. Proverbs 16 verse 32 says this, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. For, for all of the the bravado and all of the posturing that we do, the Word of God tells us that what's even more compelling than that, what's even more vital than that, is your ability to control your own heart, your ability to have self-control. You can take another city, great, but you're going to get there and that won't be enough. Then you're going to want to take another city. Then you're going to want to take another city and someone else is going to want to take you. And so the war that you have to win is the war in your own soul. It reminds me of the rich young ruler who came to meet Jesus. He had it all. He was a young man who was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. He had wealth, he had his health, he had power and influence, and he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, in one statement, revealed that the emptiness in his life was a control issue. It comes back to control. The young man was rich, but he didn't have money. Money had him. And Jesus put his finger on the issue when he said, if you want to come into the kingdom, just give all your wealth to the poor and come follow me. And in that moment, he just, he just pointed his finger prophetically at the self-control issue that this man lacked in his life. And the Bible said that man went away with his head hung low. He went away sad. And I just say to all, all the men here today, if your life is going to be marked as God's very own people, as God's very own man, you have to have self-control. Then Titus gets some instruction for him. And though he only, Paul only writes one thing about the young men, Titus is a young man himself. And so in the next couple of verses, Paul gives very specific instructions to Titus talking about young men. He says this in verse 7, in everything... Set them an example by doing what is good. Here's a great principle. This is an important verse. How are we supposed to lead? He said, set them an example by doing what is good. 
You do what it's doing. It's activity. And that's what he's emphasizing. He's talked a lot about teaching. He's talked a lot about discipleship. But now he's speaking specifically to the young pastor, Titus. And he says, I want you to give them an example by doing what is good. It always starts with action. Amen? And then he goes beyond that. And he says, and in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So the two are married together. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying we need sound doctrine and we need sound living. We need a healthy message and we need a healthy messenger. They, they can't be one or the other. You, you got you to gotta be healthy in your walk and you got to be healthy in the word. These things have to go together. If you're going to be an example, Timothy and, or Titus, you got to live it out and then you got to speak the truth boldly. And here it is again, verse eight, so that Why? Why is this important? So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. See, here's the reality. He's saying, Titus, there are people that are, they're looking, they're looking for inconsistencies in your life. They're looking for ways that they can oppose you. They're looking for, for, they're looking for incongruency between your, your orthodoxy, what you believe, and your orthopraxy how you behave. And so Paul's just saying, and this is so practical, we all need this. He's saying, look, if you're going to be a leader, you, you got to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. You can't just be compelling. You can't just be motivating. There has to be a balance between your beliefs and your behaviors because the world is still looking to make an accusation at the church. They're still looking for those inconsistencies. And what's the accusation we always get, right? It's hypocrite, Right? The church is full of hypocrites. As soon as we can find a disconnect between what you say and how you live, and and Paul was just so convinced that the answer to all this is the gospel. Titus, you you gotta just get them grounded in the word of God because the gospel that saves us is a gospel that can change us. So much so, so radically can change your life to the point that when people come to criticize you, he says they'll have nothing bad to say about you. Now, that doesn't mean they won't make something up. Not having anything bad to say hasn't usually stopped a critic. But they won't have anything valid to say about you. Why? Because you've submitted your life to the gospel. You're walking in submission to the word, and it has changed your life so much. And then he speaks to one more group. He speaks to the underprivileged. And in verse 9, he speaks to the slaves. Now, slavery, again, in this culture, was, was, very, it was very much a part of the culture. In fact, slavery, or slaves, rather, were very much a part of the church in this culture. If you study church history, you find that the names of persecuted Christians were written all over the walls of the catacombs in the early centuries. 90% of the names written on the walls of the catacombs of persecuted Christians were the names of slaves or ex-slaves. And so when Paul is looking at the people that have been saved, whose lives have been radically changed by the gospel, a vast majority of them are people that are living in slavery. And Paul could testify firsthand, the gospel travels well in chains because he preached in chains a lot. And it didn't stop him from preaching the message. And he even said at one place, I'm in chains, but the gospel isn't. The gospel's not in chains. So he's writing to people that are living in that situation. 
And he gives them these words of encouragement. He's not, he's not writing an emancipation proclamation for the island of Crete. That's not, his, that's not his point. His point is to say that you that are living in that situation, if you will live your life submitted to the word of God, you'll live different in such a way that people will see that you are the redeemed and the purified people of God. You are his own people. What does that look like for a person who's disadvantaged? And maybe that's a better word for our culture. Thankfully, we don't have slavery in our culture to the extent that we used to in this country or, or to the extent that they had it in biblical times. But a lot of times, those that were slaves, and we use the word slave in the Bible, they were indentured servants. That, you know, there, there were no big companies. Nobody could go and you know, go down to a temp service and get hired you know, to do a factory line job. I mean, if you didn't have like a family business or a trade skill, you, tough luck. And if you wanted to put food on the table, sometimes the best thing you could do is to submit yourself to be someone's servant, to go into indentured servitude, and you would be called a slave, but you would have a place to sleep, and you'd have food on your table, and you didn't have that before. There was no welfare. Nobody was getting you know, a government handout, and so there, a lot of people were in this place, and, and they were disadvantaged in a lot of ways. And so Paul writes to him in verse 9, he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Again, there's that word submitted, subject. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And again, when we read this, you know, just through our American lens, 2019, it looks oppressive. I mean, it really does. But in reality, I just want you to catch the weight of the first two words. This is not an oppressive statement. Paul says, teach slaves. Just that in itself was unheard of. You're going to let them come into church? You're going to let them sit under the teaching? You're going to let them be a part of the community of faith? So Paul's not speaking down to them. He, he's still, the gospel is elevating people. He's saying that, that there's no slave or free in the kingdom of God. But those that are living in that place of indentured servanthood, tell them, teach them. Teach them how the gospel changes us, that, that we don't just do what we're told to do, but we do all things as unto the Lord. So if your job is to serve, serve well. Don't just, and don't, don't try to retaliate by stealing. And don't talk back to your employer. He says, no, show that you can be fully trusted. Show that there's something different about your life. It doesn't matter how much money you make or what your status is. What Paul is saying is your influence is going to matter. And so whether you're an older man or a younger man, a woman, older or younger, or even if you're a slave, the way you live matters. You have an impact on the island of Crete, and so it matters how you live out your faith. Why? Because he said, and we're moving there, in verse 14, God is making for himself a people that are his very own. But go back to verse 10. Because we see those words one more time. He gives the purpose statement. He says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So in every one of these instructions that Paul gives about discipleship, in every one of them, he has a singular focus. And the focus is the same. So that in verse 1. So that in verse 5. So that in verse 8. Verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, Attractive. Question for all of us is this. Is my life 
making Jesus attractive. How about it? Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, the disadvantaged, the haves, the have-nots. Is your life making Jesus attractive to the world around you? See, that is why discipleship matters. Our mission statement as a church is that we want to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. How do we do that? We're doing it right now. We're opening up the word and we're submitting ourselves to the word and we're saying, God, if there's anything in me that doesn't align with your word, it's not the word that needs to change. Change my heart. Change my outlook. Change my life. And as we allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, we begin to take on the appearance of Christ to the point that the culture looks at you and looks at me and says, those are God's people. Not because we all file into the building at the same time on Sunday morning, but because we live differently. Paul just knew that could happen if we would come under the instruction of the Word of God. So now now what we're going to get is this incredible declaration. And and I I don't have enough time left in the morning to unpack all this, but I I want you to see it. In verse 11 through 14, Paul makes this incredible declaration about how this is possible about how this is going to happen, how the church can stand out as a people that are his very own. Let's just read it together and we'll see how far we get. Beginning in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul begins that whole little declaration about grace with the word for. And you could replace that word with because. Paul is saying all of that, all of that is possible for one reason. For the grace of God has appeared. It's all, we can do it on our own, certainly not. But we can do it because the grace of God has appeared. And what he's really saying is if it weren't for the grace of God that appeared, you'd still be a bunch of lazy, lying, evil cretins. That's who they were. And he said, if it weren't for the grace of God, you men, you wouldn't have relationship with God. You weren't born in the right society. You're not of the circumcision group. I mean, you wouldn't be a part of God's people. You're not Jewish men. And so you fall short if the grace of God had not appeared. You women, you don't have a place. You don't have a voice. You don't have any position in the kingdom of God if the grace hasn't appeared. And you slaves, there's no hope for you. But the good news of the gospel is that grace appeared. Amen? Grace appeared. And God's grace is so big and it's so vast that in this text, it covers three time zones. Past, present, and future. In verse 11, he talks about grace in the past. And he said, grace has appeared. Where did grace appear? For all. Grace appeared at the cross. Grace appeared when Jesus took our sin And the punishment that we deserved upon himself. He died in our place. Grace appeared for us. 
in that place, chapter or verse 12 says it teaches us. That's present grace. That's grace that we can have right now. Verse 13 says we look forward to it. It's a grace that's going to appear one day. And he says this grace is big. It's vast. It's wide. I just want to tell you quickly, and then we're going to pray. There's four activities of grace. And we could have spent all day on these, but maybe you just need to write these down and let the Lord speak to your heart about them. There's four activities of grace that I see here in these verses. And the first one is saving grace. Anybody thankful for saving grace? And we just read it. He said, grace appeared that offers salvation. It appeared at the cross. Jesus saved us by grace. Here's the thing about saving grace. Grace that saves is grace that works for us. You didn't do anything to earn salvation. You weren't there. I wasn't there, but it's in our past. Grace appeared. Light stepped into the darkness. He became flesh. He died in our place. Grace appeared, and it offers salvation to us. That's the hope of the gospel, that before you even were here, the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's saving grace. The second grace is sanctifying grace. And it's in verse 12. Sanctifying grace, it says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. If saving grace is grace that works for us, sanctifying grace is grace that works in us. It's the work that God is doing in the life of every Christian right now. Every person who has given their heart and life to Jesus, who has been rescued and saved by him, the grace doesn't stop there. It doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us. It's it's how we move from where we are to where God wants us to be. How many of you know it doesn't all happen in a moment? Am I the only one God's still working on? I mean, come on. We're we're not quite there yet. I want you to know as your pastor, I'm not standing at the end of our mission statement saying, I want to lead people from where they are to where God wants us. No, I'm walking with you. That's why we want to lead people. Because I'm close enough to hold your hand some days. And I want to lead people from where they are and where I am to where God wants us to be. And that's what sanctifying grace does in our life. It it moves us, young and old, the haves and the have-nots, men and women. It moves us to be God's very own people that stands out in this world. The The third activity of grace is serving grace. Serving grace. Look at verse 12, the latter part of it says, and it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So saving grace works for us. Serving grace works, or sanctifying grace works in us, but serving grace works through us. Did you know there's a grace on your life to serve? God's grace wants to enable you to serve, to to help others. Last week, we we talked about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and and how they were arguing about who who gets to be a part of the church. Paul wrote about that conclusion of what happened. He said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, he said, at the conclusion of that council, James and Cephas and John those who are esteemed as pillars of the church, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship 
when they, look at this, they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What grace did they recognize in Paul's life? Did they recognize the grace that he was saved? No. Did they recognize the grace that he was sanctified, that all of a sudden he seemed to be a little bit more holy than the last time they had seen him? No. He said in the beginning that he he was an apostle to the Gentiles as Peter was an apostle to the Jews. They recognized the grace of God on his life to serve. It's a serving grace. And God's given you a grace. So, you know, we, we have an opportunity, practical opportunity. You saw the slips on of paper on the chairs on your way in. We have a local food pantry, and back in the back there, in the back of our sanctuary is a, a box, and there are several tote bags back there that have our church logo on them. This is a practical way that you can, you can serve. Uh, let's be honest, sometimes we just complicate ministry. We want to encourage you to be a part of that. There's a list out there on our community board of all the prevalent needs in our food pantry. You can just snap a picture of that list. So you have it with your grocery list. And on the first Sunday of the month, just bring the tote back with you. And you can put it in that box back there so that we can practically serve people and just demonstrate the grace of God. There's a multitude of ways. The Bible talks about the the multitude of, of expressions of God's grace in the church. That's just one that anyone can be a part of. The fourth grace is this. Here's an activity of grace. And that's what I'm going to call snatching grace. We have saving grace, we have sanctifying grace, we have serving grace, but then Paul, he looks to the future of where grace is already at, and he says in verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you know the blessed hope of the church is that Jesus is coming again? That's the hope that we have. I mean, the scripture is clear. Listen, The scripture is clear where this world is headed, that judgment will once again come on the earth and will come on humanity. There is a wrath to come, but there is also a grace. And I call it the snatching grace because the word rapture is not really in the Bible, but the word is a catching away. And and we use that word to describe this experience that the Bible says, whether it's by way of the grave or by way of the second coming of the Lord, there is a day in your life and in my life, where the Lord is just going to call us to be with him. That's the blessed hope. Let me read one verse to you about this, this hope that we have. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. This is such an awesome verse. It speaks about your future and mine. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means as the world just continues to to spiral out of control, God has a plan, a a grace for his church. He has a plan of redemption for his church. You weren't appointed to wrath. You you weren't appointed to go through the hardship and the struggle and the turmoil and and all of the apocalyptic events that we read about. Why? Because God's grace is a snatching grace that he's gonna call his church home to him before all of that begins to unfold. And we've made our way back to verse 14. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself 
a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what Jesus is building. A a redeemed and a purified people that, that, that the world can look at and say, that's God's people. And they're not just a people who look the part. They're a people who are eager to do what is good. They're eager to do what is good. And then Paul ends with just a, an encouragement to the preacher. He says, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. And don't let anyone despise you. And I tell you, as your pastor, as your pastors, we take those words very seriously. These are the things you should teach. And you should do it with all authority. Now, I don't have any authority on my own to tell you how to live your life. I don't ever want to presume to be the all-knowing sage from the stage. (laughs) But when I hold up this word, and when I speak this word, it says you can speak it with all authority. Now, there's only one person I know of that can give all authority, and he's the one who said in Matthew, all authority has been given unto me. And Jesus gave us that authority to proclaim the truth of his word. And then he put the, he, he put the onus on us to respond to it. I, 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 can, I can declare it all day, but it's up to each and every one of us individually to, to see the places where our life comes in conflict with the word of God, and to submit our hearts. Because the word doesn't change, and his truth doesn't change. And Paul was convinced, and I'm convinced, that if we'll do that, if we'll just continually come, the way we sang earlier, I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more, more than words could say, I need you more than ever before. If we can come to God every day with that posture, not a, a haughtiness or an arrogance that thinks we haven't figured out, but a humility that says, God, I I submit myself to your word every day. I am convinced, as thoroughly convinced as the Apostle Paul was, that God will purify and redeem us to be a people that are his very own. Does anybody want to be that people with me today? Come on. Come on. Can we just, right where we're sitting, just lift our hands toward heaven? Father, right now in this moment, Lord, we just lift our hands to you just as a sign of surrender. God, there's not a one of us who can claim to have arrived fully at the place you've called us to be. But God, we're thankful that grace doesn't just call us to salvation and leave us standing there at the foot of the cross. Thank you that the grace that saves us sanctifies us. That the grace that sanctifies us puts a gift of the Spirit in us and calls us to service. Thank you, Lord, that today we have the hope the blessed hope of the church that not only does it get better, but it's going to get really good. That Jesus, you're coming for your bride, your church. So Lord God, we just lift our hands, we lift our hearts to you today. Lord, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, we just, we want to be a church 
We want to be a healthy church. A church that teaches sound doctrine. We want to be a people who hold fast to the faith. Who don't just start well, but who finish the race. God, give us a fresh resolve today. A fresh commitment in our hearts and lives to follow you. To humble ourselves to your word. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Would you just be willing to just place your hands over your heart today? You know, the the Father never intended you to serve him on your own strength. So would you just pray a prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you right now? I think it would mean more if you just prayed in your own words. Come on, just ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. Father, today, Lord, just, you know what we need, God. You know where we fail and we all fail. You know where we struggle and we all struggle. God, Lord, those things in my life that don't look like the people of God, help me to change them. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work in me so that people that know me, so that people that see my life would see not just what I believe, but they would see that, Lord, my life is different because the gospel has the power to change my life. God, help me by your Spirit today to be everything that you want me to be. Lord, so much so that that I could be your representative in the earth. God, that people that know me could know what you're like. Some days I feel so far from that. God, I I don't reflect your character. I don't reflect your, your attitude. But God, right now, fill me with your spirit so that the evidence of your presence in my life would begin to manifest in my conduct, in my conversation. God, may those that are far from you see us and know as God's people. They're different. Lord, we thank you for your patience and for your grace working in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen today. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's just give God praise for the work he's doing today. Thank you, Lord.